turn to the book of Micaiah, as the Hebrews call it, the book of Micah. His name means, who is like Yahweh, or Jehovah. Micah is very much like the Hebrew word Michael, which also means, who is like God, Mikael. Micaiah, or Micah, we read, came from a town called Morasheth Gath, which is in Judah. Israel is an interesting country. It's a land of diversity. It has both deserts and mountains. It has lush green forests with lions and brooks and rivers. Uh, then it's got its plains. It's got ocean. It's got such a variety. It's much like Southern California where, or California where you've got you know, Yosemite and the Sierras, and yet you've got Death Valley, the lowest place in the continental United States. Israel has mountains that are above 10,000 feet, as high as Sandia, and yet in the same country a few miles away is the Dead Sea, 1,280 feet below sea level, the lowest place on the earth. At the time that many of these books were written, the kingdom was divided. And it's important to have certain facts fixed in your mind as you study the Old Testament. One is the division of the kingdom. Under Saul, the kingdom was a monarchy. Under David, the kingdom was a monarchy. Under Solomon, the kingdom was a monarchy. And all the 12 tribes were united under one head. Solomon, though he brought prosperity to the nation, he brought idolatry to the nation because he sinned against God, married so many women he couldn't keep count of them. And when he died, there was a division of the kingdom, Jeroboam versus Rehoboam. The Boam brothers were at it again. And the kingdom divided into two. Though it wasn't two in equity of tribes, it was in division of land. Ten tribes went north. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed south with Jerusalem as their capital. Now up in the north there was another hill, Samaria, and that was their capital. During the division of the kingdom there was much apostasy, though uh, some of the kings were good, some of them were bad down south. Most of the kings up north were really rotten guys and brought more and more reproach to the people. Micah comes from down south, down in Judah. He's a southern boy. Comes from a place called Merasheth Gath, which is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem near the Philistine country. Though he comes from the south, he preaches to the south and the north, to two principal capitals, Jerusalem and Samaria, because both of these places exerted the greatest amount of influence. A capital city, for that matter, a city always influences the rest of the country. Notice when it comes to fashion in our country, it's L.A. and New York that seem to spawn off these weird fashions year by year. And everybody follows suit because it's in, in those places. New ideas that come from the city permeate the country. Jerusalem was the spiritual center of the country. When the country split, Samaria became the spiritual center up north. Jerusalem remained the spiritual worship center down south. The time that Micah, or Micah, writes this prophecy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Both of these capitals that were worship capitals had become corrupt. The government had become corrupt. And so Micah has that unpleasant task of bringing forth a harsh message. But Micah was different than many prophets. Micah was not like Ezekiel, who was this robust, hard-headed prophet. He was a prophet with a tender heart, much like Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because he wept. He not only pronounced denunciation on the nation of Israel and Jerusalem, but in the book of Lamentations, it's Jeremiah who's outside the city walls, observing the city under siege of the Babylonians, writing, weeping, writing the book of Lamentations. And you're going to see a prophet tonight like Jeremiah, like Hosea, with a tender heart. Um, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, Micah of Morasheth, 
in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, the kings of Judah, or Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The first king mentioned in verse 1 is a guy by the name of Jotham, who was the son of Uzziah. Now, Uzziah was a pretty good egg, all in all. Uh, he loved the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord, but toward the end of his life, Uzziah became lifted up with pride, decided, hey, if I can be king, man, I can be priest. And so he went into the temple of God, and he started dressing up like a priest, and, you know, he kind of was like, I want to play priest today. God struck him with leprosy. <laughs> when God struck him with leprosy, and that is how he died a few years later, his son, by the name of Jotham, took his place and sort of co-reigned with Uzziah until the time that Uzziah kicked the bucket of leprosy. At which time Jotham became king, taking on some of the reforms of his father, but not totally able to rid the land of the idolatry because the hearts of the people were so impudent, so hardened, so far gone. Uh, next on the list is Ahaz. Ahaz was the successor of Jotham. And Ahaz has a problem. Now I'm giving you this because this is the background of the book. The problem that Ahaz had is that there were two kingdoms that were against him. Ahaz, the king of Judah, had the king of Israel, whose name at that time was Pekah, and the king of Syria, who at that time was named Rezin, who collaborated together to attack Judah. Now, Ahaz, instead of calling on the Lord, decided to call on Tiglath-Pileser, who was the Assyrian monarch, and promised him that he would serve him if he would come in with his troops, hired him out, come in and destroy this federation that was against him. And it happened. He was freed from the wrath of Pekah and Rezin. But later on, Ahaz left Jerusalem went into Damascus, which Tiglath-Pileser the Assyrian had overtaken, was so amazed with the temples to the idols in Damascus that upon coming back to Jerusalem, Ahaz set up pagan altars in the place of the temple of Jerusalem. So you can see already there's a lot of idolatry. The people are given to idolatry. Sometimes there's reform and revival, but they just go full circle and get swept into the same idolatry. Then we read about the next king, Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah was a reformer. He purged the temple, repaired the temple, rebuilt it, and reinstituted worship. He ridded the land of the fertility cults. Do you remember reading in the Old Testament... They worshipped Baal, and they worshipped Ashtoreth in the groves. These were sexual fertility cults. They won lots of favor with the Israelites. Sex always has a hook. And many men in Israel frequented these pagan temples because sex was the way they worshipped, out in the open temples. But it was Hezekiah who brought reform and ridded the land of these cults and seemed to get the land back on target. The reforms had come. He removed the high places. And uh, that's the background in verse 1. Uh, the prophet Micah, during the reign of these kings, brings a prophecy concerning Samaria, capital of the north, and Jerusalem, the capital of the south. By way of introduction, we might also mention that this prophet had some contemporaries. There were other guys that were prophesying during his time. One was Isaiah. Another was Amos. Another was Hosea. So it wasn't like there was one prophet at a time raised up. Many times, several of them were raised up together. Isaiah was mostly down south. And Isaiah probably was a friend of Micah. Because many of their words and prophecies are very closely related. In fact, chapter 4 of Micah sounds an awful lot like Isaiah. And it's not that one copied the other, though it sounds very similar. The Holy Spirit wanted to get a message across. And it's always by the 
mouth of two or three witnesses that a word is established. And you know, anytime God says something twice, you got to listen. You know, it's enough if he says it once, but if he repeats himself, it means listen up. And so when Jesus said, verily I say unto you, oh, he's saying something heavy. When he says, verily, verily, ooh, it means we listen. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is to be established. If you appreciate poetry and beautiful language, you'll love this book. In fact, already some of your favorite scriptures are found in this book, whether you know it or not. Chapter 5 of Micah is a beautiful scripture. The prophecy concerning Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, though you be small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be the ruler in Israel. Micah 6.8 is one of your favorites. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so some of Christian's favorite scriptures come out of this book. And it is written with a grace of poetry. Um... Don't want to get too deeply into it because we've covered it in the past, but by way of review, much of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew poetry called parallelism, where you have a thought that builds upon another thought or a thought that is in contrast to another thought, antithetical parallelism. And, uh, uh, well, let's just go on. We'll just read it and we'll see. Um, Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth, all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Let's read a little bit and then we'll go back and make comment. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob all for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? The book of Micah is quoted by Jeremiah and by Jesus Christ. Jesus mentions him when he says that, he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And now he quotes Micah. From this time forth, A man will be divided against his father and a daughter against mother and a man's foes will be from his own household. That comes right out of this book. And so Jesus quotes him. You might say that one of the themes of this book is government. In fact, every Republican and every Democrat, especially every politician, ought to read this book. During this year, it's a timely message because it speaks of the contrast between corrupt and righteous government. You know, there's always a, uh, a ruckus around the political year, the voting year. Of course, there's lots of negative campaigning. It's bush-slamming time by the Democrats. And if a Democrat had been in office, it would be Democrat-slamming time. And we're always pointing the finger at Congress or the House of Representatives or the cabinet of a president. I have come to believe more and more that the form of government is really irrelevant. I'm not trying to sound communistic or dictatorial, but the form of government is really inconsequential. It's the kind of people that you have in government that is important. And that's where our problem has always been. There have been times that under the sweetest democracy, man has proved he cannot govern himself. And there have been dictators who have been benevolent dictators and who ruled well. And you know, ultimately the form of government will be a dictatorship, a theocracy, a benevolent dictatorship, but Jesus will rule with the rod of iron. And whether Democrat or Republican, one day you will have to lay down those vestiges and swear allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords anyway. (laughs) And that's the only time when the earth will be really run in righteousness. We all like to uh, point the finger, as I said, at the House or at the Congress. That they're the ones uh, for the problems. But, well, you know, it was England 
that because of the oppression under King George, when many of the people left and came to America, you know, we thought, hey, we hate the dictatorship of England. Let's have three segments of our government so that they can all watch each other. But nowadays, you need to watch all three of them. Because there's corruption, I think, in all three of them. And the issue is those who are in government must themselves be of top quality. And every now and then in USA Today, you'll hear a report, you'll read a report. And they'll ask people about problems that certain uh, candidates have had in moral issues. For instance, so-and-so has been caught in immorality in an affair. And every now and then, somebody will say, it doesn't matter. What matters is if they're a good politician, if they can rather go. Their personal life is their own private, personal matter. And I think, how stupid. If you can't trust a person in his own value system of his own family, if his wife can't trust him, that value system will eventually merge into his political arena. If he's corrupt at home, he's eventually going to be a crook in political office. It's the quality of leadership. And man has proved incapable of governing himself. Let me get my Bible. Um, you know, I should have told you this, but, but notice uh, verse 2. The first word is here. Listen. And uh, you could divide the book up into three sections. Each section begins with here. Chapters 1 and 2 form a section. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 form a section. And the beginning of the second section, chapter 3, the first verse says, listen or hear. And then um, chapters 6 and 7 form the third section. In each section, there is the call, or uh, there's the pointing of the finger at the sins of Israel, the call toward repentance, actually, the denunciation. And then there is the promise of the blessing in the future under the Messiah. Or you could divide the book, if you wanted to, into two sections. The first three chapters are denunciatory. Judgment is promised. The last four chapters are consolatory, where blessing is promised. And there is this undergirding theme of the Messiah. You know, the Jews always had the hope that one day a deliverer would come. A Messiah would come. The hope of Israel has been the Messiah. That's why Paul, when he stood before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, he said, listen, I'm being judged because I believe in the hope of Israel. I believe in the Messiah. Well, guess what? He's come. He's risen from the dead, Paul said. You and I believe in a Jewish Messiah. You believe in the hope of Israel. He came once, he will come again, and when he comes again, he will fulfill many of the promises of the covenant that he made to the Jews. He will restore the land. He will set up a theocratic kingdom in Jerusalem. He will reign from Mount Zion. Out of Zion will go forth the law, and out of Jerusalem it will be issued forth, and all nations will be gathered unto it. We'll read about that in chapter 4 when we get to it. Um, in verse 2 it says, Hear all you people. So, uh, Micah has a message for you and I because I think we would fall into that category of being part of all of the people. Verse 3, Behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The language in the two verses, verses 3 and 4, are words that speak of natural catastrophe, i.e. earthquakes and volcanoes. And it's a picture of judgment. God will tread upon the high places of the earth, and just like these natural catastrophes, God will come down and make an impact upon the earth. And of course, it was fulfilled, this language beautifully put, was fulfilled by the Assyrians uh, when uh, Shennacherib and eventually Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian came in against Jerusalem. And uh, in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in and destroyed Samaria. God came down and used them as his tools for judgment. Um, it says, all of this, verse 5, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria 
And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? The seats of worship, the centers of worship, had become the centers of corruption. They were so influential that when they fell, so fell the nation. And so the indictment is upon the capital cities. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background on Samaria. Okay. At one point, the nation was united. And as we said, the nation split into two. Jeroboam took a section. Rehoboam took a section. It was divided ten tribes against two tribes. There had been animosity ever since. Jeroboam I was the king of the northern kingdom. And he was weary of the people having to leave the north and go down to the south, to Jerusalem, to worship. And he thought, you know, I've got to devise a plan so that the people in my neck of the woods won't travel south and worship in the temple in Jerusalem, though they're commanded to do so, because I might lose them. They might become affiliated with the south. And so he decided to set up a priesthood. He set up two calves, one in Bethel, around the Samaria area, and one in Dan, up north. And he developed his own priesthood. And he commanded people saying, hey, these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. Worship these golden calves. And so people in the north didn't go to Jerusalem anymore, didn't worship in the temple. They started worshiping these golden idols, and they had a priesthood. So automatically there was an antagonism built in by the hardcore Jews around Jerusalem against the people in Samaria. Then, because of her sin, when Samaria fell in 722 B.C., and all of the people of the north were swept away captive into Assyria, the Assyrians did a very interesting uh, plan, a strategy. They repopulated Samaria by bringing in Assyrians and people from other cultures whom they had taken captive, let them live in Samaria, and eventually the Samaritans or the people, the Israelites of the north who stayed, who weren't taken captive, the farmers and the peasants, intermarried with the Assyrians and developed a race known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans, because they were already hated by the Jews down south, built on a mountain called Mount Gerizim, Gerizim. On the, temple, on the high, top of Mount Gerizim, they built their own temple. And so, you understand now the background when the woman at the well of Samaria said, what are you doing here? What are you, a Jew, speaking to me as Samaritan? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now you understand why. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds, idolaters. And the woman at the well couldn't believe that Jesus, being a Jew, would even have a conversation. First of all, what's Jesus doing in Samaria? When a Jew would travel from north to south or south to north, he would take the long route. He would either go along the seacoast or way through the Jordan Valley and around. The quickest route was straight through Samaria. But the Jews hated the Samaritans. Wouldn't even set foot in Samaria. So she said, what are you doing? A Jew speaking to a Samaritan. And Jesus said, if you only knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for some living water. And I'd give it to you. And then the woman said, our fathers worship in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you Jews worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said, it doesn't matter. God is looking for people to worship in spirit and in truth. And there will come a time, and it is now, when true worshipers aren't going to worship in Mount Gerizim or in the temple in Jerusalem. But worship God in spirit and in truth. Anyway, that's the background of the Samaritans. And I thought I'd give it to you so you understand the uh, animosity behind it as we read it in the New Testament. Both these places have become corrupt. Verse 6, Therefore... Or because of this, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in a field. You know, I wouldn't like to live in a city that had these kind of things written about it. It's just like Iraq, you know, and when the war happened in Iraq and when the troops went over there, I thought, I would hate to be the king, the ruler, the prime minister of a country with as many things written against it that are of denunciation in the Bible. Man, I would not like to be sitting, living in that country as the monarch. And when God says, I'll make you a heap of ruins, man, listen up. 
any of you who decide that the Bible is not literal and the promises of the Old Testament are all figurative and aren't really fulfilled in the nation of Israel, but they're fulfilled in the church, you have another thing coming because this was literally fulfilled. And so much of the Old Testament denunciations against Israel as well as for Israel have their fulfillment literally. If you go to Samaria today, and if you do, if you ever go, by the way, be careful. Just like the tour guide just said, Skip, when I was going to rent a car, I said, don't go through Samaria. The Jews still have no dealings with the Samaritans. They'll stone your car. But I decided to go through it anyway. I told you that. And I just wanted to see Bethel, and I wanted to see what Jacob's well looked like, and I wanted to see Samaria, because at one time it used to be a vineyard. And when Omri, the king of Israel, became king of Israel, he decided to buy this open field set upon a hill and build the city of Samaria upon it. I thought, I want to see what it looks like. And I looked, and I saw how this verse was fulfilled. Because the hill of Samaria is shaven, and there's vineyards that are growing there now. It has reverted back to tillage as they till the land today. As they harvest it, the Arabs control it. And the ancient city of Samaria, the palace of Ahab and Jezebel, you have to look down the mountain into the valley and you see some of the rubble and the stones where after it was fallen by the Assyrians, it was just left there thousands of years ago. It's reverted back to just being farmland. And listen, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour her down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. Samaria was a place of graven images, idolatry. One of the idols found in the excavations were not only... Uh, graven images of Baal and Ashtoreth, and I've seen some of the images of the fertility goddess of Ashtoreth, but Molech. Molech was a tiny little image made out of iron whose arms stretched out about long enough to hold an infant. And they would take Molech, set it in a fire, and let it get so hot between red and white heat and they would sacrifice their babies upon the arms of Molech. Their babies would burn to death before their eyes. Because of that kind of idolatry, that kind of the diminishing of human life, even that they would diminish the life of a baby, an innocent, God says, judgment is on its way. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. She shall be burned with fire. All of her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot. And they shall return to the pay of a harlot. The pay of a harlot were the temple harlots in the temples to Baal and in the groves that worshipped Ashtoreth on the high places, the high hills. Therefore, now listen, this is a little bit of a break here. It's Micah himself speaking. He's not the kind of prophet who listens, shakes his finger and walks away smiling, thinking, I got them. You know, there are some people who deliver a harsh message, and they themselves are just kind of harsh, uncaring, unloving people. And uh, they love to come up and say, Thus says the Lord to you. God gave me a message for you. Ever had a person come up and say, God told me something about you. You know what I always tell a person like that? I say, great, the phone line is open. And if God tells me the same thing, then I'll listen and I'll remember as a confirmation this message. If not, then you're a false prophet. But many people say they have the gift of exhortation. What they really mean is they have the gift of condemnation. They love to point fingers, to rail and walk away going, well, I delivered the message. I was faithful. Not Micah. Micah wept. And these are his words. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked, a sign of mourning, a sign of um, deep anguish. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. He was not disassociated. He was not dispassionate. He was very, very emotionally involved. He was tenderhearted. 
Now, there were prophets <laughs> that were tough cookies. Hosea was tenderhearted. Jeremiah was tenderhearted. Micah, Micah, he was tenderhearted. But then you got guys like Ezekiel, hard-headed, for a very good reason. God said, Ezekiel, I am sending you to a people who are impudent and hard-hearted and hard-headed. Therefore, God said, I will make your head harder than their head. I'm going to make it so that you'll have a tough, thick skin. And anything they say, it's not going to get to you. You're not going to be emotionally involved. Make it tough because they're so hard-headed, I'll make your head harder. And often God needs to raise up hard-headed individuals because there are hard-headed people. But then God raises up those gracious, weeping saints who are emotionally involved. Look at Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was over in the Assyrian and Babylonian area, and some of his countrymen came back from Jerusalem, and they were over there, and he was a cupbearer for the king. Nehemiah said, hey man, what's going on in Jerusalem? How's the city doing? Been wondering about it. They said, it's not good, Nehemiah. The city is burned with fire. The people are so despondent. And Nehemiah started weeping. He could have said, serves them right. They sinned. Hmm. Why should I worry about it? I've got a nice cushy job in the palace. I don't care. But he wept. He said, oh God, we have sinned. Not they have sinned. We have sinned, Lord. And I identify myself with them. Forgive us and rebuild. And then he became part of the solution in going back. Micah is part of the solution. And notice he says the reason, verse 9, for her wounds are incurable. Why? Her wounds are incurable because anytime a disease in the body gets to the heart and affects the main system, it can get to a point where there's no hope. The cancer, the disease has spread. It's now in the very life, the very center of the being. The disease of idolatry had gotten to the heart of God's people, Jerusalem. At a place where they had to be worshiping in the temple, Jehovah God, singularly, there was a dualism, a pluralism. They were worshiping God on one hand and worshiping idols on the other. Her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And in a few short months or years, whichever, under one of the rules of these kings, Shennacherib would be knocking on the door of Jerusalem, threatening the king, King Hezekiah. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar would come down and in 586 B.C. destroy Jerusalem because of the disease. First, Israel fell. Second, Judah fell. The disease had already spread through Samaria. Now it started to spread through Jerusalem. And companions in sin are doomed to become companions in judgment. Samaria fell, Judah is falling. Now, verses 10 through 16 is a list of cities, at least 10, in Judah, around Jerusalem. And uh, what God is doing is kind of picking out different cities with a play on words in the Hebrew language. Let me just go through them. Tell it not in Gath, which means the city of weeping. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not in Beth Afra. Beth Afra means the house of dust. Roll yourself in the dust. See, it's a play on words of the city itself. Uh, go in the city of dust and roll yourself in the dust. As a sign of mourning, they would often put dust on their heads, weeping and wailing. So God is showing the judgment will come to all of these cities. And uh, the reason it says, tell it not in Gath. You know why that is? Gath was a Philistine city. The Philistines were encamped on the coast. If, if it were like California, let's say you had a map of California, the Philistine area would be San Diego County. And the enemies of Israel had camped along the coast, and they hated the Israelites. And any time um, Nebuchadnezzar sent his scud missiles over into Israel, the Philistines rejoiced. All right. And so the prophet says, don't go tell the Philistines what has happened, or they'll rejoice in the fact that you're being wiped out. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shafir, which means house of beauty. And it says, pass by a naked shame. In other words, you're not going to be very pretty much longer. The inhabitant of Za'anan, which means to march, does not go out. 
Beth Ezel, which means a place nearby, mourns its place is to, to stand is taken away from you. It's going to go to a far country. For the inhabitant, the inhabitant of Maroth, which means bitterness, pined for good. But disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. I want you to notice something that you may not be comfortable with. God takes the full responsibility for the disaster. Now, we don't like to think about that. We think everything that we would consider as adverse must come from Satan. And everything that makes us smile must come from God. That's convenient, and it's certainly capitalistic. But it's not always scriptural. God says concerning these people, disaster came down from the Lord. God is using your, using your enemies as a chastening rod to get you back to him. To the gate of Jerusalem, O inhabitant of Lachish, oh, 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, near to where the prophet came from. Harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. Idolatry began in Lachish. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you shall give presents to Moresheth Gath. It's kind of nice. That's where the prophet was from. He liked that. To the houses of Achzib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle. Now I have many friends. That's become sort of their life verse as they grow older. For they shall go from you into captivity. There was a prohibition in Deuteronomy 14 for any Israelite to shave himself bald. And yet, judgment had come upon the land and it became a custom in mourning when judgment came to shave your head. And so they were doing it and God says, hey, listen, it's been a prohibition, but now it's time. Cut it off, man. <laughs> because of your precious children, enlarge your baldness like an eagle, they shall go from you into captivity. He's speaking of what would happen in 586 B.C., looking forward at that time to the Babylonian captivity. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. Can you imagine sitting up at night just thinking, what evil can I do tomorrow? I've got the power to do it. I've got the resources to pull it off. Not being able to get sleep because you're thinking, man, I just want to really rip somebody off. Premeditated evil. Now, compare this verse with the thoughts of the righteous upon their bed. Here's one thinking, how can I do evil? Look at Psalm 4 for just a moment. Psalm 4, verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. That's what the righteous do. Lord, here I am. I trust you. The wicked, on the other hand, woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields. Now, in chapter 2 uh, is a list of sins that God is bringing judgment on them for. In chapter 1, God says, You have left your God. Your relationship with God has deteriorated. In chapter 2, God says, Your relationship with your countrymen has deteriorated. Now, there's an important principle there. Whenever your relationship with God is out of whack, your relationship with people gets out of whack. And herein is the problem of many counselors. You go to the psychologist's office. Well, you have a deep psychological problem. And I think it is because you have this, and you've know, you, you got to go and with this person. And If you're a Christian, if your relationship with God is unsettled, out of whack, your relationship with people is out of whack. And the first thing you must do is restore your fellowship and relationship with God. That's first and foremost. That doesn't mean everything will be, wee, all of a sudden, cheerful. But that's first. And your relationships with people will never be right until your relationship with God is first right. And you can chase 
mending every relationship. And if you don't get first things first, you'll chase it and you'll be chasing the wind. And it always follows. When you push God out, you have problems with other relationships with people. People don't get along. You know, during the 60s, some of you remember Haight-Ashbury up in Northern California, San Francisco, the flower children, the hippies. Peace, man, love, man. We just forget society. We just love one another. And, and they thought that they locked into a philosophy whereby through singing love songs and carrying flowers and, you know, saying peace, man, and uh, that everything would be cool. And a lot of us were taken in by it. The anti-society, anti-cultural stance, it bombed big time. It has failed to the max. Look at the people who are leftovers from that generation, those who have not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Their relationships are deteriorated. They've gotten sometimes two, three, sometimes four marriages that have ended in divorce. Where's the love? It was the same generation that pushed God out, that pushed the value system of absolutes out, that started wanting free morality. Let's just love. It never worked. When you leave God, other things don't work. And our society, especially that generation, has learned the lesson. Verse 2, they covet fields, and they take them by violence, and houses also, and seize them. So also oppresses a man in his house, a man in his inheritance, therefore, says the Lord, Behold, I am against this family. I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily. For this is an evil time. It says they covet fields. God protected his people. God protected their land. They had land rights in the Old Testament. And... Uh, if something happened to another person's land and you happen to end up with it because he lost everything, eventually, though you had it for a while, the land would eventually go back to he and his family. The person had to become your slave on the Jubilee year, the 50th year. All debts would be canceled, land would revert back to the owner of the family, and yet some of these leaders devised loopholes in the legal system to rip people off from their land, and they coveted houses. They weren't satisfied with the land that God apportioned to the 12 tribes of Israel. Covetousness is one of the greatest sins, and yet we don't see it as that. We think, oh, adultery, heavy sin. Stealing, ripping off, heavy sin. What about covetousness? Jesus said, beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. That was one of the sins listed here. Uh... My mind goes back to, I think it's 1 Kings 21, when there was a covetous king who lived in Samaria. Remember his name? He had a wicked wife. Ahab. Ahab was a brat. And his power was his wife. His wife was more gutsy than he was. He was just a spoiled, rotten brat. And he found a field that he was really stoked on. He wanted it. And that was the field over in Mount Carmel, owned by a guy named Naboth, Naboth's vineyard. And he thought, man, I really like that. It's a, I'd like to have that just for my own personal garden. And so he went to Naboth and he said, name your price, buddy, any price, I'll pay for it. Naboth said, it's not for sale. It's been in my family for generations. It's mine. You can't have it. I don't care if you're the king, it's mine. The king went home and pouted, I want his field, I can't have it. And Jezebel said, hey, man, you're the king. What are you doing? You're the king. You can have whatever you want. Hey, don't worry about it, honey. I'll get it for you. Relax. It'll be my present to you. Valentine's is coming up. So Jezebel took some of her men and said, Hey, throw a big feast for Naboth and make him the guest of honor and get him soused on the wine from his vineyard. And then... When you compliment him and you've got this big feast, get a couple of wicked men who will sit in front of him and in the middle of the feast make accusations against Naboth in front of everyone. Call him an insurrectionist and a traitor and then take him out and kill him after you level the charges. So they did that and they killed Naboth and then Jezebel said, don't worry honey, Naboth is dead here. You can have his vineyard. According to the law, if someone was killed, the government could take possession of it 
in certain cases. But, you see, they, they develop this little legal loophole. He's dead. You can assume possession of it. You can take it. But by deceit, they killed him. And that's some of the stuff going on here. They covet fields, take them by violence. And uh, God says, I'm against the family. Verse 4. In that day, one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation and say, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How he has removed it from me. To a turncoat, he has divided our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the congregation of the Lord. You weren't satisfied with the allotment of land given to the twelve tribes. Now your enemies will determine the boundaries. You will be at their mercy. Verse 6, do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy. So, they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? They couldn't stand truth. They couldn't stand the Word of God. They couldn't stand Bible teaching. They wouldn't settle for a night like this. If they were in a Bible study like this, they'd be quick to leave, to walk out. They couldn't stand. They had itchy ears. We quoted a scripture out of Isaiah this morning that holds true in their case. They said, Do not prophesy unto us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy unto us deceit. Hey, man, tell us what makes us feel good. Pat us on the back. Tell us we're great guys in the midst of our sin. Don't make us change. Don't tell us I've got to repent of anything. Just pat us on the back and think, you know, say, think nice things. Think positively. It's nice to be nice. It's good to feel good. And uh, that's all we want to hear. And so they just called uh, the prophets prattlers. Boy, I'm losing things falling all over the place. All right. Lately, verse 8, God says, My people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who, you, who trust you as they pass by, like men return from war. He's speaking of their oppression against the poor. A poor usually had an undergarment and he had an outer robe. And uh, if the poor owed you some money, you could take as a down payment, you could take as a kind of earnest his robe, his outer garment. But according to the law of Moses, you had to return it to him before it got dark. Because that's all he had, man. He needed that to keep warm at night. And yet these guys say, hey, you owe me money. As they pass away, give me, and they just rip their robe off. You know, might was right to them. And God indicts them because of it. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children, you have taken away my glory forever. So obviously women who were widows who received a nice inheritance of a home from their husbands who died, they just ripped them off. Arise and depart. Jesus, by the way, in Matthew 23, read it on your own sometime, indicted the Pharisees for the same thing. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled, it shall destroy you, even with utter destruction. You know what God is saying? God is referring to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, God said, I'm bringing you into a new land, a land that will give you rest from your enemies. God says, you know what? This isn't what I had in mind. Your enemies are going to come and take you captive. This isn't the rest I intended. Because you disobeyed me, I'm kicking you out of the land I promised to give you. Brings us to an important issue. The issue of God's covenants. A covenant is a deal, a binding agreement. Marriage is a covenant. Two people stand before each other. There are witnesses. A covenant is made until death do us part. God makes covenants. And in the Old Testament, several covenants were made. Some of them were conditional covenants. Meaning, God said, I'll do this if you do this. You have a part, I have a part. Then there were some covenants that were completely unconditional covenants. It was more of a declaration. God says, I will do this. God made a covenant that the Messiah from the loins of David would sit upon the throne. That was an unconditional covenant. The line of David has been uh, sinful and has even been cursed because of Jeconiah, but God still has a promise. He'll fulfill it one day. God made an unconditional covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that first of all, through their seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the Messiah was the fulfillment of that promise. 
Also, God said that they would inherit a land that he would give them, and it would be theirs. It was an unconditional gift under that covenant. But then there is another covenant that comes along called the Palestinian covenant. It's so-called. I don't like the term Palestine because uh, there are no Philistines. Have you ever met one? I've never met one. They're dead. And uh, Philistines don't inhabit the land of Israel. It's been given to the Jews. It is Israel. It is not Palestine. Because Palestine is a word that means Ur Philistia, land of the Philistines. And they're dead. I haven't met one. But the Palestinian covenant is a theological term to denote a deal God made with Israel. He said, I'll give you this land as long as you obey me. Deuteronomy 28. It was a conditional covenant. If you obey me, I'll bless you. It'll rain. You'll be stoked. We'll live happily ever after. If you disobey me, I'll boot you out of the land. You say, now wait a minute. I'm confused. On one hand, you got an unconditional covenant. On the other hand, you have a conditional covenant. And they both speak about the same land. How does it work? Well, it works like this. God's clever. Abraham, it's for you and your seed forever. Moses, this is a conditional covenant. If you don't obey me, I'll boot you out. But you read the rest of Deuteronomy 28. God says, and when you are in the land of your captors... You're going to have it so bad off that you're going to turn to me and repent. And when you do, I'll bring you back. God basically said, I'll make you miserable so that you will return to me. In fact, the reason for the captivity is so that you will repent and turn back to me so that I can fulfill the covenant that I made to Abraham. Unconditionally. And though they've been booted out many times, they keep coming back. And in 1948, it's the most recent comeback when people, Jews from all over the world have come back to Israel. So that's kind of in a nutshell. God says, this is what I had in mind. You don't have rest. And today, this is not what God had in mind. And if you want to see what God had in mind for the nation of Israel, hang around for the millennium. Then you'll see. And for the rest of the world. Because it's defiled, it shall destroy you even with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. In other words, you know, the guy comes along and uh, you can hire him out, he'll speak whatever. If he says what you want to hear, you'll pat him on the back. If he says, thus saith the Lord, go get drunk, man, let's go have a keg party. I'm, I'm loosely translating this in modern vernacular. You'll say, hey, pray, all right, this guy's from the Lord. That's how debased they were. And there's people like that today. They call it Christian liberty. Hey, man, I have the right to get drunk. I have the right to live with my girlfriend in sexual sin. You have no right to judge me, brother. We love the Lord. Oh, please, that's blasphemy. Don't degrade the name of God. And if you say you're a Christian, please stop. Don't tell anybody you're a Christian if you're living in that kind of immorality. You're just dragging the name of Jesus Christ down to the gutter. By living like that and telling people you're a believer. You say, oh, I'm a Christian. Then keep it quiet until there's some change. And when there's repentance, God will receive you back. I've met people who say, hey, well, you know, God said it was okay. Oh, really? How do he tell you that? Because if he told you that, I'm going to throw this book away. Because we've got two conflicting revelations, yours and his which you say is his. You say yours is his, it's not. Now, in verse 12, there is this, in a sense, uncanny kind of a, a transition, a sudden switch, where in the midst of this, you know, spiritual finger-pointing, there's a blessing promise of the Messiah. That is not uncommon. If you're familiar with the prophets, there is often this uh, line of thinking, and then sudden camera switch. And, and you know... You've seen the movies, rapid technical changes. That's what keep people's attention as you watch the films. You know, you watch a Lucas film, and all of a sudden, your eyes are on this peaceful moment. And then they want to make you move inside. They'll have a camera flash to, you know, a rapid scene. You go, <gasps> catch your breath. And this is sort of kind of like that in the prophets. There's this denunciation, and then all of a sudden, you're by the waters, enjoying this promise of God's future blessing and restoration of the land. Let's read it. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like 
sheep in the fold. Like a flock in the midst of their pasture, they shall make loud noise because of so many men. Like the one who breaks open will come before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Let me go back and just explain that. Um, verse 12 says, first of all, he addresses them as Jacob. Anytime God uh, wants to address Israel in their backslidden state, he calls them by the name of Jacob. Jacob's name, you remember, was changed to Israel. Jacob means heel catcher, which came to mean deceiver. His name was changed to Israel, one who fights victoriously with God or, you know, striving against or even with God. So he goes back and uses the old name, Jacob. Hey, heel catcher, deceitful one. But anytime God uses the name Jacob, he doesn't do it to chide them, but to show mercy to them. And mark that, anytime God uses the term of Jacob, it's to say, you are so corrupt, I'll show you mercy. I will restore you. I will return you. He says, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like the sheep of the fold. Now that happened after the captivity. The Jews under Cyrus returned to Jerusalem. But that wasn't the total fulfillment or the exhausting of this promise. Because it says in verse 12, I will assemble all of you. And I think it has its final fulfillment in the book of Revelation. When all of Israel shall be saved, the 144,000, 12,000 out of each tribe, all of that remnant shall be saved. They'll be sealed by God on their foreheads. And God will bring them. And uh, God will protect them. Uh, it says, I will put them together like the sheep of the fold, like the flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because there will be so many of them. And verse 13 is a prediction of the Messiah. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, go by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. In other words, I'm going to give you a shepherd. You're a flock. I'll bring you back into the fold. The good shepherd, the Messiah, will come and lead you and break up all of the obstacles that will be in your way. And he'll go before you. And he'll lead you. You know, there's a principle of sheep herding. Now, I'm not a shepherd, but I've read and I've spoken to shepherds. And they basically said that the happiness of their sheep is directly proportional to the kind of shepherd those sheep have. And that makes sense. You know, I mean, it's pretty obvious. You have a good shepherd, takes care of the sheep. He can ensure the happiness of his sheep. So God is saying, you know, you guys have been ripped off. I'm going to give you a shepherd who will go before you and will lead you, the Lord at their head. And uh, we can uh, brisk through chapter 3, since there's only 12 verses, because it kind of carries that thought. God, after speaking of the Messiah coming, denounces the shepherds that Israel has had, the government leaders, even the spiritual leaders. Hear now, O heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. He's saying, you're leaders. You guys should know justice. That makes sense, right? You guys are making the laws. You guys ought to be right on. Remember when Nathan came to David after David sinned with Bathsheba? And Nathan knew that David had sinned. And Nathan said, David, I have a story I want to tell you. There was a rich guy who had lots of sheep. But when his friend came over for a meal, instead of using one of his many sheep, he goes to his next-door neighbor who had one lone female sheep. It was like a pet to him. And the rich man took the poor guy's sheep, killed it, cooked it for dinner. <laughs> David said, whoever did that will surely die. Nathan said, you are the man. He spoke a parable. God has given you the nation of Israel, and you, with all that you have and with the wives that you have, you committed adultery against another man's wife and took her as your own and had him killed. Shame on you. You ought to know justice. You're the king. But corruption had befallen David. And any time government is corrupt, what do you expect from the people? When you have government officials at cocktail parties getting drunk, being indicted for drunk driving... What kind of integrity will they have leveling any kind of punishment or legislation 
for drunk driving in their community. Come on, give me a break. Guys like that should be booted out like that. Isn't it for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil. Then they will cry to the Lord. Uh-oh. But he will not hear them. He will hide his face from them because they have been evil in their deeds. You know, have you ever heard a person who's an unbeliever? They talk about the corruption in the world and they go, Whew, may, may God help us. They who, many of them themselves, have pushed God out of their lives, who've not acknowledged God. Yet in times of crisis and the world caves in and they see the news, may God help us. Well, i got news for you. Why would you expect God to help you when you have pushed him so far and perhaps our wounds are incurable as a nation? That doesn't mean that a person, an individual, can't come back to God. But when a nation sets its course for judgment, there comes a time when it's incurable and God will judge. I believe, personally, it's my personal belief that our nation is either close to that line or has passed that line where judgment becomes inevitable. I really believe that with its looseness, with the looseness of morality, homosexuality has become the issue in the church where the church's standards are, well, hey man, the world does it. You know, we don't want to be unpopular with anybody. You know, we just better just let you know, people just sin however they want to in the church, and that's what the world does. You know, we don't want to be unpopular. Hey, I, then let me be unpopular. I don't mind it. I don't care. I can be hard-headed like Ezekiel. But it's wrong. And perhaps we have passed that point to where our wounds are incurable. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace. Oh, that's what people want to hear. Tell us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Tell us we're okay. And they love that. And they prophesied peace. While they chew with their teeth. But who will prepare war against him? Who puts nothing in their mouths? Therefore you shall have night without vision, you shall have darkness without divination. Verse 7, the seers shall be ashamed, the diviners abased or abashed. Indeed, they shall cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. In other words, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. No revelation for you guys. You've got false prophets, you listen to them, you pat the guys on the back who give you smooth things, the gospel of peace, prosperity. You won't listen to the truth? I won't talk. Now, Micah says, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple like bare hills of the forest. Depravity. The prophets, the shepherds, God denounces in verses 5, 6, actually the rest of the chapter, and it brings up an important truth. The flock of Jesus Christ suffers from two dangers. Number one, wolves from without. And number two, false shepherds from within. We are often quick to admit there are wolves from without. That's why Christians often scurry to be together with each other because of the cooties on the outside. But there are cooties on the inside. Paul the Apostle with the church of Ephesus said, When I leave, I know that savage wolves from among you will devour you. That's why I love the good shepherd. Jesus was so quick to point out false shepherds. When the disciples were having a conversation one day with the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus interrupted the conversation and said to the Pharisees, What are you talking to them about? I like it. It's a good shepherd. What are you telling them? Because he knew that they had the ability to spew out false dogmatic information that could ruin their eternal perspective. Paul the Apostle named names of false prophets. 
He said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. May the Lord reward him according to his deeds. He spoke about the false prophecies of Hymenaeus and Philetus, saying the resurrection is already past. He named them. That means he was a good shepherd. Sometimes people don't like when I name some of the jokers who are out there promulgating stuff in the name of truth, false doctrine. Though I am sure they love the Lord, I'm sure that they're really sincere. I've mentioned before people like Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland and Fred Price and Robert Tilton and others. Not because I don't like the way they part their hair or the way they shake, but because of what they teach. I think many of them are well-meaning. They say, well, you shouldn't name names. Sure I should. If you had a bottle that was poisonous in your garage, you better mark it poison so nobody drinks it. And I am called as a shepherd. And sometimes I have that unlovely task of saying, false teaching, stay away, be pure, search the scriptures. Though those men, many of them I expect to be with in heaven, I don't want you depleted spiritually here serving the Lord and being taken astray by false teaching. And so I share it. The people of Israel didn't like Micah, but they loved the people who just said, peace, prosperity, you know, claim it. May God help us as sheep to have discernment. To live boldly, but to love mercy. To do justly. To walk humbly with our God, as we'll get to in chapter 6.